we go. Hello and welcome to the third edition of Red Lake Roundtable. I am pleased this time around to be joined by longtime veteran broadcaster Steve Fiziak, who spent parts of, I believe, four years in the city of Cincinnati. Steve, thanks so much for joining me. Seth, thank you for inviting me on. I mean, it was four of the greatest years of my life, and that's exactly the place where I met the love of my life, Stacy St. James, and she agreed to marry me. And uh, we spent two years together in Cincinnati. Okay. And of course, I was there for a number of years before heading to the Bay Area. Well, I guess you've already mentioned probably that your favorite memory of, of the city is meeting your now wife. Um, do you have any specific uh, Reds memories? And we're going to go way down the memory lane, but I like to start off by, you know, associating you with with the Reds themselves. What was your favorite thing with the Reds that you covered? Well, obviously, it was the Pete Rose record-breaking mm -hmm. hit of Ty Cobb, and it surrounded our wedding. And it was interesting because at the time I was working with my dear friends like Marty Brenneman and Joe Nuxhall and Lou Ray Noni was the producer and the uh, director was a dear friend, a great guy and Roy Alfers. And we had a blast. But if you recall in 1985, that was the year that Pete Rose broke Ty Cobb's hit record and it surrounded our wedding. Oh, and wow. I was about ready to propose to my wife. I never did. She was a little impatient, so she actually proposed to me. But I got a baseball, and I have it over here. And um, I asked Pete, I said, when do you think you're going to get the hit that will break Ty Cobb's record? And he immediately goes, August 23rd. And I like shook my head, and I said, how, how, where would you come up with that number? And he goes, well, Steve, only, I think he said something like 62% of starting pitchers are right-handed starting pitchers. At the age of 46, I'm only going to start against right-handers because he was the manager. And he goes, and I'll sit against left-handers. And at my age, I'll probably hit between 260 and 265. I'll get this number of at-bats. And as you know, Pete was very good with numbers. And yes. so he said, August 23rd, I'll break the record. So I said to Stacy, my wife, and I said, let's get married September 7th. And September, October, excuse me, August 23rd comes and passes and Pete doesn't have the record. And we are going to get married on September 7th and then go on our honeymoon. But the television station, WLWT, told me, you can't go on your honeymoon until Pete gets the hit. So sure. there was all this pomp and circumstance surrounding my marriage, along with Pete getting the hit and Jerry Springer, who was the news anchor who I worked with, I was the sports anchor. He was having fun with me every single night that Pete doesn't have the hit. How are you going to get married? And he actually tied the record in Chicago. And I had a Cubs game on a Friday. And my rehearsal dinner was that night in St. Louis. Well, it was the Cubs Reds day game, Wrigley Field, starting at one o'clock. And I only did the middle innings. Ken oh, wow. Wilson. Joe Morgan did innings one through three and then seven, eight, nine. But for some reason, both of them had to leave. They had to leave early, even though they knew I was getting married. But I was the newcomer. So I said, I can't fight this. So they said, you have to do innings four through nine by yourself, which I did. And Roy Alfers, who's the terrific director, he told me, he said, I know, Steve, you've got to get out of here, bus to the airport. And um, so he just said, when Pete does his press conference, you go. And this is the post-game press conference after he had pulled to within one of Ty Cobb's record. 
And the interesting backstory of that, I had flown in that morning. I was going to take a cab. And this gentleman who drove a limo came up to me and he said, excuse me, I can give you a lift to wherever you need to go for the same price as the uh, cab. And I said, well, okay. Uh, I checked on it and we got into a conversation. And this guy knew Chicago very well. And he said, this was the old Wrigley Field before it's been redone. And he said, during the game, I'll go, I'll wait for you in the seventh inning because he thought I was just going to do innings four, five, six, and then get out of there and go to my rehearsal dinner. Well, in this case, I had to do the rest of the game as Ken and Joe headed to the airport for their assignments. And apparently there was a gap in the press box. And so I would literally turn around, look outside, and there was a tire store across the street from Wrigley. And he said he would wait there and he knew exactly the view. So I kept on waving at him like, Stay there, stay there. (laughs) Anyway, the game ends. They do the Pete Rose press conference on the field. I bust out of there. Roy Alfers, our great director, he just plays music to the end as I go out. And this guy, who's the limo driver, I'm telling you, I have no idea how he did it because most people tell me that would be impossible to get to (laughs) O'Hare Airport that, that fast. And he's going through people's yards, through alleys, through parks, and this limo's going crazy. And it was just like the scene from a romantic comedy, trying to get to the church on time. And back before 9-11, you could do this. Well, sure. he pulls up to the side of the airport. I run inside and I actually yell at the gate agent. I say, hold flight 489 to St. Louis. I'm getting married. <laughs> and the gate agent called. They held the plane. I got in the plane. They started clapping. I went there, made the rehearsal dinner, got married the next day. Sunday, we flew back to Cincinnati to see Pete. He goes 0 for 4 against a right-hander on Monday, so we can't go on our honeymoon. On Tuesday, a left-hander starts, so he doesn't play. And then on September 11th, Mm -hmm. he gets the base hit to beat Ty Cobb and to break the uh, hit record. And before 9-11, that's what 9-11 always meant to me, the day that Pete Rose broke Ty Cobb's hit record. So there's an amazing story surrounding that with my getting married. And I I still have a baseball that is signed, uh, Stacy, Will You Marry Me? And on the other side, Pete wrote, but not until I get the hit. (laughs) The best part about that uh, signature, Seth, is that, Pete Rose misspelled until he spelled it I N dash T I L. But he is a guy that you could go into the clubhouse. You could could sit in uh, his office and sit on the edge of his of your seat, listening to him tell baseball stories. But he had a lot of fun with me, as did some of the other members of the team, like Tony Perez. Um, uh, get me to the church on time and. Uh, <laughs> Um, it, it was it was a great memory and a great story and 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 one of the true uh, stories I love to tell about my time in Cincinnati. Absolutely. Well, the funny thing is, I have a wedding baseball story. Um, one of my groomsmen was Matt Andrews, who was a Louisville Bats play-by-play voice. Okay, uh-huh. and so he was in my wedding, and King Griffey Jr. was about to hit his 500th home run. And I had gone to see Griffey on Wednesday or Thursday. And then we went to Dayton where I was getting married. And um, the rehearsal dinner was Friday night. I had Matt with a little earbud in trying to find out if Griffey hit the home run. 
And then at the wedding, he's, he's got his earbud at the reception, not during the wedding. And then we go through the whole thing and he never hit the home run. And then on Father's Day, we had a brunch at my in-laws. I came in from outside on the patio, opened the door, Griffey steps up, hits the home run. I got to see it. So <laughs> not quite as not quite as in-depth as yours, but uh, I will never forget where I was when King Griffey Jr. hit that home run. So. You know what? And that's one of the great things about my job is the people you meet along the way. And I had known Junior when he was a kid in Cincinnati and he would either watch me. Well, we're talking about Ken being like 10, 11, 12, 13. So when I started working for ESPN in the early 90s and, and I did a lot of West Coast games, which meant I was up in Seattle doing the, the Mariners games. And so Junior and I would have a little back and forth when he would be at batting practice. And uh, and I apologize for the language of saying this, but I remember I was coming in and, and, I, and I had an ESPN game that night and I was passing by Junior. He turns around and he goes, hey, Fizz, are you taking no acid all pills? And I go, I, I, beg, I beg your pardon? And he goes, you must be because looking at your pants, you got no ass at all. <laughs> and so that's one of my favorite Ken Griffey Jr. stories. But he was such a, a, a friendly guy, a, a guy who loved the game, and just the fact that he and I had both kind of spent a lot of time in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. He grew up there, and I spent four great years. And then got to know him even more when I did Mariners games. But he was a delight to be around and one of the finest baseball players I ever had a chance to broadcast. Well, that is, that's, that's great to hear and certainly beloved in Cincinnati as well. Um, I, my little format for this show, I kind of like to talk about your tie to the Reds to start, but then I want to go down memory lane a little further back and I, I won't keep you too long, but, but I wanted to highlight some of your career, um, touch tones. Uh, you, you graduated from Kansas state university. My father-in-law grew up in Manhattan and he oh, wow. went to Kansas state. My, my wife's grandmother lived in a home by herself in Manhattan, just down the street from the university uh, until she was 95 years old. Wow. And uh, so she eventually she moved to Albuquerque where her daughter lived and, and she lived to be over a hundred out there. But uh, yeah, so we, we have ties to Kansas state. Tell me a little bit about going there to school and, and kind of what that experience was like. That was the greatest opportunity of my life because I was not a good student growing up. I loved sports and I actually went my first year at Kansas State and was on academic probation because I was in the time of my life of being confused. Like, I don't know what it is that I want to do for the rest of my life. I know I like sports, but I'm not good enough to play it. And I actually took a year off to kind of get adjusted, get my grades back in order. And during that time off working as a busboy in a restaurant in Kansas City and working another job for my father, I gained up enough money. But I also came up with the idea like, you know what, kid, you're not very good at sports, but you like talking about it. What if you did a play by play assignment? And all I can tell you, Seth, when I went back to Kansas State, I uh, entered a broadcast program. And I had a great professor by the name of Bob Fiddler, and he challenged us. And he said, whoever sells the most time for our college radio station, KSDB-FM, to get on the air, you'll be given your prime assignment. Well, I sold the most, and uh, I chose to broadcast the local 1A small school high school games. And Seth, all I can tell you is I did one game, and it was Lucky High 
versus Wakefield, two small schools. And I walked out of the broadcast booth with my hands shaking. And they weren't shaking because it was a great game. My hands were shaking because I knew what it was that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I wanted mm -hmm. to do play by play. And I just absolutely uh, did every game I could. And I did that at KSDB FM and my college radio station. And then my first job was at KHAS Hastings, Nebraska, where I followed my my mentor or one of them, Fred White, who was a great broadcaster for the Kansas City Royals later. And then I came back to Topeka, Kansas for four years and was the voice of the Kansas State Wildcats football and basketball. And then uh, a station, WLWT, called me up and uh, wanted me to interview for a job. I flew out there. I actually had two opportunities, one in Cincinnati, one in Sacramento. I actually wanted to go to Sacramento because I had been dating a girl who lived in California. And I went to Cincinnati first. And Seth, WLWT blew me away. I mean, it just seemed like not only a great station, a great sports station, but also a great city. And uh, I fell in love. And when I got on that airplane, I said, Sacramento better be really good <laughs> because uh, this is this is going to be hard to pass up. Well, obviously, Sacramento couldn't hold a candle sure. to WLWT in Cincinnati. I went there and I'm so glad I did because not only did I worked for a great sports station in WLWT, but I got to meet great friends like uh, um, Pat Barry and Norma Rashid and, of course, Jerry Springer and uh, the coaches, Sam Weish for the Cincinnati Bengals, mm -hmm. and obviously Pete Rose and guys like Ron Oster and Buddy Bell and, 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 and just uh, terrific people um, in Cincinnati. And, of course, the best of it all, I met my wife, Stacy, there, and we got married and uh, adopted our first child from uh, Fort Thomas just across the river. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I guess if you could tell me a little bit about, so you get hired by the TV station. You were a sports anchor. Um, I, I, I want to hear a little bit about working with Jerry Springer, but but what was the tie-in that got you to do the games, the, the Reds games? How did you end up uh, getting that opportunity? Um, what happened was when I was being recruited, they told me, they said, we'd like you to do the Reds games. We'd also like you to do the University of Cincinnati Bearcats football and basketball games when they're available and, um, and, and when they were going to do television. And so I was really delighted about that. Plus, they gave me the freedom to um, freelance. And I actually, my first year there, only my first year there, I did the AAA Louisville Redbirds games. Yes. And the, the Reds had seen that. And they had just hired a gentleman by the name of Roger Blaymeyer, who had been with the um, Indiana, the Indiana Pacers basketball team, and then took over the broadcast department. And because he liked the association of TV with their anchor doing the games, he recruited me and he said, Steve, I'd like you to join Marty Brenneman and Joe Nuxall on the games on television because Marty was going back and Marty and Joe were going back and forth radio to TV. And they said, we'd like you to join with them. And I love Marty and I love Joe. And so I was very excited about that. And so uh, Ken Wilson and Joe Morgan moved on. Marty and Joe took over that TV package. I joined them and just had a blast with them. And they were delightful to work with. And so that's how uh, I became affiliated with the Reds. It's kind of a foreign arrangement to more modern folks who who know of like the the 
RSN sports channels where the TV guy does TV and the radio guys do radio. Right. What was what was that the 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 way they broke it up there? Marty and Joe were on the first three innings. I know in '86 it seemed like, and then you you would work with well maybe you worked with Marty some and then with Joe some. Yes. Talk about that a little bit and kind of what was going on on the radio. Did they simulcast it or or how did that work in the radio booth? You know, I can't remember, but I believe what would take place is that when Marty would be on, he would be just doing the radio, and then Joe would would take over and do his innings when Marty would come and join me on mm-hmm. uh, TV. And remember, back then, we only did like 50 games. Right. And, uh, but what took place was because WLWT became so popular that my boss called me in and said, we've gone from third place in the ratings to number one. And I don't want you leaving to do ball games anymore. I want you in the studio working with Jerry and Pat and Norma for our ratings. And I go, that's not why I came here. Mm-hmm. I came here to do play by play. And the boss who hired me was a different boss than the one who had taken over. Bob Gordon was the one who had hired me to come from Topeka to Cincinnati to do the Reds games. And then another fellow had taken over and he wanted me to only be the sports anchor for WLWT, but I wanted to do ball games. Well, thankfully I'm married to this incredible woman. I was offered a six figure contract in Cincinnati and Roger Blameyer, who I told you about, who had been the director of broadcasting for the Reds, he had left the organization and taken a similar job with the Golden State Warriors. Mm. And he said, Steve, I showed your tape to a friend of mine who runs a TV station in the Bay Area, and he likes your work. He will give you um, freelance work one day a week for $150 a day. And I'm thinking, I've got freelance work one one day a week or a six-figure contract (laughs) in Cincinnati. But the Bay Area was going to give me freedom to freelance. Well, I chose that. And luckily, I have a wife, even though we had just adopted our daughter. She was one month old. And my boss said, you either take this job or we'll get somebody who will be the uh, the solid anchor and not do play by play. And uh, I, I left for the Bay Area, took that job. And within three months, they all they moved me on in the middle of the season in August I saw to that. Do San Francisco Giants games. And I actually had the call when the Giants clinched the National League West that year, um, I had the call. And a week after that, they they fired the previous broadcaster, Gary Park, named me the Giants broadcaster to work with Dwayne Kuyper and Joe Morgan. And then I also did the Fresno State football basketball mm-hmm. package. And that led to ESPN, where I did ESPN uh, Major League Baseball, college football, and college basketball. And then the Golden State Warriors called me and said, we'd like you to do our radio. So I did their radio. So I was doing a lot of games. <laughs> you were. You were. Short time. When you go back to the Cincinnati days, and certainly Joe and Marty and Joe had been together since the mid-'70s by that point. Um, but I grew up mainly on radio, listening on radio. And we had I could get the Columbus station, WTTE, and, and some of your games would be sent up there. So we would get some of the games, but mostly it was following my grandpa around, listening to the radio. And the way I understood how to call games was when it was Marty's inning, Marty called the game. Yeah. And Joe would introduce a pitcher um, if they changed pitchers. And then, but he'd kick it back to Marty and Marty would call the inning. 
and then vice versa the same way. Sometimes they would chat with each other, but mostly if it's your inning, it's your inning. And I went on to Ohio State, and in the spring of 1999, we started doing baseball games on the student radio station, and the guy in the booth with me was from Pittsburgh, and he had grown up with their radio announcers. And I've got the, the first inning. I start calling the inning, and all of a sudden, he starts talking. And I was blown away because I, I had no experience whatsoever with a quote-unquote color guy on radio for baseball. And I just looked at him, and we, we got through the inning. I said, hey, I don't know how to do it this way. I got I to gotta call my inning. <laughs> so it was just very different, you know, the, the, the differences around. And of course, if Marty or Joe was in the TV booth with you, and the other one was in the radio booth. They were alone, weren't they? Yes, they were. And I've always looked at it, the business, this way. If you're doing radio, the play-by-play guy obviously is the lead mm-hmm. and the star. In television, it's the color commentator. And I've told this to every single color commentator, and I've worked with over 200. But the uh, gentleman I've worked with the most, Rex Hudler, I've spent 22 mm-hmm. years with Rex Hudler. Uh, with the Angels and with the Royals, and we became dear, dear friends. And when we first broadcast, I said, Rex, it's my job to make you a star. So once the I, I call the play, the rest is you to explain why it happened, why it went well, why it didn't work. And, and then also, but I'm going to try and lift you up. And I did the same thing with Marcus Johnson. Marcus Johnson was mm-hmm. my college basketball analyst for 11 or 12 years. And one of the finest human beings I've ever worked with. I just love Marcus. And he was, we just, we just synced up immediately. I remember the first time we did an NBA summer league game that Roy Hamilton, our executive producer had us do. And Marcus and I just hit it off. And obviously Roy liked us, put us on the air to do the college football games for the PAC 10, now PAC 12 conference. And now it's, it's gone away. So, but, but, with Marcus, I would go, I'm going to, I'm going to call the basket. And as soon as I, I call the basket, the rest is you. I wouldn't mind having it back once they get across the timeline. So I can <laughs> yeah. play up again and say, you know, uh, download a Johnson. He turns and scores, but um, Marcus has an incredible sense of humor is a, a dynamic talent, very articulate, very thoughtful, obviously a wooden award winner, six time NBA all-star. And, and we're still dear friends. And uh, he's the analyst now for the Milwaukee Bucks. Okay. Yeah. And I think I remember, did you do work with him with Fox sports? I did network when you did pack 10 games. I remember specifically tuning in to watch those games and he is a very good analyst. You're right about that. Um, I want to go back in Cincinnati. Actually, first, tell me a little bit about working with Jerry Springer. And certainly uh, he became more and more famous uh, after those years. But but what was that experience like? And could you see in him kind of the more uh, uh, magnetic star that he would become? You know what? He's one of the smartest and funniest people I've ever been around. And uh, whether it was on the set, but he was also had a real soft spot in his heart for the underdog. And uh, some of his commentaries were so brilliant, but they're always very thoughtful. And I know that his show, the Jerry Springer show, made him a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was doing a an Angels game and he came into the booth. I was doing an Angels-White Sox game in Chicago and that's where he lived. And he came into the booth and I felt comfortable saying this. So I turned around to him as he's coming in the door. I go, Jerry, you sold out. And he goes, 
I know, but I'm making so much money. <laughs> and he was funny. He didn't take himself seriously. He took his job seriously. And obviously he had a lot of, uh, there are a lot of fans out there who watched that show. I really didn't watch it. Uh, but the first time just, I thought it was kind of, you know, a little bit out there, yes. but when we would go out after a show, uh, he would be mobbed by the locals in Cincinnati and he just handled it with such grace and so much fun. And I remember the two of us went to the blind lemon up on Mount Adams and, uh, coming out of the, uh, the bar at the same time was this young lady named Stacy St. James with her boyfriend. And I'm with Jerry Springer. And of course we stopped and said hello to them, but little did she know that I already had a crush on this girl named Stacy St. James. And uh, later she's the one who became my wife. Yes. So uh, I remember Jerry and I would, would see Stacy occasionally. And when we adopted our daughter, Ryan, Jerry and his wife were there at our, uh, uh, what do they call them? The, uh, the baby showers mm -hmm. and, and Jerry and his wife came to that and, uh, he had a chance to hold Ryan, but he was just a great guy. And recently when I retired, Rex Hudler and Joel Goldberg, two of my working compatriots with the Kansas city Royals, they surprised me with, uh, a, go a retirement party. And I, they, absolutely shocked me and they put together this video rex and joel that was so funny but the lead guy in it was jerry mm -hmm. springer and it, and it, he 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 recorded this piece for me jerry did um only three months before he passed and i didn't even know that he had been ill but it was such a a beautiful tribute from jerry and from a lot of fellow broadcasters like marcus johnson of, of course rex um, just individuals I, I've worked with in the past that I absolutely love. And, and I, I just am so thankful for Rex and Joel for doing that for me because it's a great memory. Absolutely. Let's go through a few of the, um, the, the Reds memories that I, I jotted down. Obviously, the Pete hit was the big one, and then you tied it in with your wedding. I didn't see that coming. That was awesome. Uh, but but I, I want to talk to you. Um, there was a brawl with the Mets. Uh, July 22nd, 1986. I don't know if you remember this day. Um, that Kevin uh, Mitchell for the Mets? Well, Eric Davis slid into third and Ray Knight kind of elbowed. Oh. Eric Davis always did that pop-up slide. Yes. Knight, Knight elbowed him and that got it started. But yeah, Ke Kevin Mitchell was certainly involved. I want to go through this a little bit. Uh, John Franco was pitching for the Reds. He struck out the side. And I love the, Johnny. He yeah, was such a good guy. I did a, a, a video report. On, on on John and, and his roommate at the time, Jay Tibbs, that was so funny. Mm -hmm. And uh, when John made the All-Star game, I, I called him into the studio and had him and interviewed him. And but he didn't he didn't pitch. Oh, so yeah. I got every little clip I could find of John Franco sitting on the bench. And I and I had fun with him. I had him spitting gum out or blowing a bubble. And here because I said, here are your highlights. And when he got off the air, he gave me a smile and he goes, Fizz, I'm going to get you for that. <laughs> and sure enough, the next day, I have to do a live scene at Riverfront Stadium. And I get Dave Parker, who's a friend of mine. And Dave had also been at the All-Star Game. So I'm doing this live scene. And Dave and John had set it up. 
And so while I'm broadcasting, I'm interviewing Dave Parker and Parker, he's angling my body a certain way. He's leaning a certain way so I won't see. And right as I'm broadcasting and interviewing Dave, John Franco comes out of nowhere and slams a pie in my face. <laughs> and, and, and Dave's reaction was perfect. He goes, and as you can see, Fizz, things are looking pretty creamy for the Reds right now. They won <laughs> four games in a row. But that group of guys, I just loved. I loved traveling with them. I loved broadcasting their games. They were really a, a, a together team. Um, you know, unfortunately, they didn't have the kind of success that, that they had hoped for, but they just didn't have enough pitching to right. get to that next level. But they were a joy to broadcast, a joy to, to be around. And Dave Parker and Marty Brenneman used to go at it in the clubhouse. And you think, <laughs> oh, my gosh, these guys are going to come to blows. And then they start laughing and you go, you know what? This is what sports should be all about. That's right. That's right. Well, so just real quick. So Franco strikes out the side with the bases loaded. Pete Rose pinch hit himself for Franco, which certainly we don't see much anymore. There's there's not player managers for, for some time. Then he had Eric Davis pinch run for him. And Davis stole second in a year when he had 80 stolen bases. Uh, he then stole third. And that's when I described what I said. Uh, Eric took umbrage with Ray Knight, kind of shoving him off the bag. I went back and watched this. Um, you know, that pop-up slide, I guess it get, created just a little too much friction between the two. And then the funny thing is you're on the air with, with Marty at the time and Kevin Mitchell comes hard at, at guys, but then John Denny comes in and, uh, you said, I, I wrote this down. You said Ray Knight is a tough guy. And Marty said, tell me about it. Of course he had played for the Reds, right? Years earlier. He says, I saw him drop Cesar Cedeno five or six years ago here. And then Marty said, that is what you call Steve, and this was one of Marty's isms. He'd say, a good old good one. And I don't know <laughs> if you remember Marty saying that, but he said it on the air many, many times. Um, and well, I Knight do remember that Ray Knight, I think, was either a silver gloves or gold gloves yes, he was. when he was like 15, 16 years old. So he could handle himself pretty well. And John Denny yeah, was a karate judo guy. But the one thing I noticed – and I, I became good friends with Kevin Mitchell. Actually, there's a funny story how my son was named after him. Um, Kevin Mitchell was like in the middle and there were people surrounding him. Like no one wanted to mess with Kevin no, Mitchell. No. He was a bad dude from San Diego, but actually he's a, he's a, like a gentle bear. Sure. And uh, I, I got to know him very well when he uh, was part of the world, the, uh, National League West Championship team for 1989 and the MVP. And uh, the funny story about that is we adopted both of our children from Ohio. Our daughter was born in Fort Thomas, Kentucky, actually just across the river. And our son was born in Dayton, Ohio. And uh, when you adopt, it's not like you have nine months of pregnancy to know that you're going to get this kid. You get this phone call and you've got to run to the... So I am... My daughter, my excuse me, my wife named our daughter. And as we're driving to the uh, airport, she goes, "Well, here's the list of names I I, I have for the, the the boy we're adopting." And I'm going, "No way!" <laughs> so I actually went down the Giants roster and I go, "Will Clark, Will Fiziak, nah nah, uh, Robbie Thompson, Robbie Fiziak, nah nah nah, uh, Kevin Mitchell, no, oh. <laughs> Kevin Mitchell, that's." And, and so um, we named him, you know, kind of in a funny way after Kevin Mitchell, 
Kevin Andrew. My little brother's name is Andrew. So it's Kevin Andrew Physioc. Our son is named. And when I told Kevin Mitchell this, he went nuts. He thought that was the greatest thing in the world. And he came over. I'm going to get up for a second. And he goes, uh, you give this to your son right now. So here's a Kevin Mitchell baseball bat. And he goes, I want to meet him. And uh, um, this is after he won the uh, 89 MVP. And he goes, I want to meet him. And I said, I will bring him to see you, Kevin, when he is old enough to know who you are. So he's like two years old. And his whole life, he's known that Kevin Mitchell is, is uh, he was named after him. So I take him to a Giants game. And I, and I know Kevin's going to be there. At the time, he was he was with the Reds. Yeah, yeah he, was, he was coming back with the Reds. And um, I hadn't seen him, well, other than the ESPN games that I was doing when he was on the West Coast. But he, I had just recently done a Dodgers game against the Reds that he had played in. And I told him that I'm going to bring my son. So I have my son behind the batting cage. And Kevin Mitchell comes out of the dugout. And it's the first time he's been back to Candlestick Park since he won the MVP. But now he, because he was tr traded to the Seattle Mar Mariners and then to the Cincinnati Reds, comes back as a Red. And uh, my son, I go, hey, Kevin, there's Barry Bonds. And my son's like, no big deal. Oh, and there's Will Clark. No big deal. And I go, oh, here he comes, Kevin Mitchell. And my son's like vibrating. He's so excited yeah. to meet Kevin Mitchell. And the swarm of photographers surrounds Kevin Mitchell because it's his, the first time he's been back in Candlestick since he was the MVP. And as soon as he sees my son, he breaks through the crowd, runs over, grabs Kevin, and uh, all, the photographers come over and flash all these pictures to take a, of Kevin holding this little boy. And two weeks later, somebody from Upper Deck Cards calls me up and go, hey, uh, Mr. Physioc, we have this great picture of Kevin Mitchell holding a little boy, and someone told us that it's your son. And I go, oh, yeah, he was here. And he goes, well, with your permission, could we use it on his next baseball card? And I go, sure. So the Kevin Mitchell card, I think in 1992 or 93, on the back of it is Kevin Mitchell holding that. his son. And that's <laughs> my, my Kevin. So it's Kevin with Kevin. And I've always had this soft spot in my heart for Kevin Mitchell because of the kindness that he showed my son and also me through the years, even though he's this tough San Diego guy mm -hmm. that I got to know very well. And I heard about his backstory and it wasn't the easiest in the world. But to get back to that story, I always remember him being in the middle of that fight. Yeah. No one wanted to really get near him. Meantime, uh, Davis and Knight did duke it up a little bit. And John Denny uh, had somebody in a headlock. It, it was pretty wild scene, but um, that, that was one of the best fights I have seen. Yeah, that was. And and actually, I was a, a sports writer for 12 years at, at a paper here in Columbus. And my editor, actually, he was at that game, but he had recorded it on a VCR tape. Even this was been, you can find it on YouTube right now anytime you want. But, you know, 15 years ago, you couldn't. And uh, he brought the tape into the office and, and he goes, I want you to see this. Did you ever see this? And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And uh, yeah, just amazing. Um, that, that was the interesting thing too. George Foster was with the Mets and he didn't come off the bench supposedly. And it really kind of ended things with him and the Mets. He didn't get to finish out the season with them. Um, you know, so we already talked about Pete and the hits record. 
Talk about that young crop of players, Eric Davis, Barry Larkin, Paul O'Neill. We mentioned John Franco, Tom Browning. They all kind of came right at the same time, about the time you were there. Yeah, and all those guys I absolutely fell in love with. Eric Davis was one of the most dynamic players. And I'll always remember when he suffered cancer later in his career and had to sit out for a year. Uh, When I saw him, I was doing, I'm not sure if I was doing Fox Sports or ESPN, but either way, I was in the uh, clubhouse with Eric and, and, and I had known him when he was in single A. And I'd go down to uh, uh, spring training, and that's where I first met him, where he was one of our top young prospects in the Reds organization. But later in his career, after he missed a year, maybe a year and a half because of the cancer, um, we were in the clubhouse, and he could not have been any nicer and also more, more, more grateful. And he said, Fizz, I think every ball player should have to sit out a year because you'll find out how much you love the game. And he goes, I miss that year. And I'm just playing for the love of the game right now. And he played with such joy after that. He played with joy even before, and he was such a talented ball player. But the other guys loved Tom Browning. He was awesome. Uh, I didn't do his perfect game, but I had a chance to watch him throw some shutouts. And he was one of those guys that uh, was so competitive but also fearless, even though he was kind of a soft tosser. But boy, he would get into the minds of some of the hitters and then break the bat and slam the bat down in disgust. Uh, Some of the other names you mentioned on that team, Paul O'Neill, who Mm -hmm. I got to know, and he was one of the great competitors I saw, particularly when I broadcast Yankee games. And he was a leader on that team. Um, I don't know how many times Rex and I would be broadcasting a game and let's say Paul O'Neill would break a bat and roll a ground ball out to short and get thrown out. And HUD would go, I give him four seconds before he snaps. <laughs> yes. And sure enough, Paul would go into that dugout and just wear out some water cooler or whatever. But Paul never got mad at a teammate. He only got mad at himself. Mm-hmm. He was just an incredibly co- competitive person, and it just chapped him when he couldn't get a hit 10 times out of 10. That's right. That, that group of guys certainly was. And I, I already talked about John Franco, my my respect and, and love for him. Just a great guy to be around. Very funny. Um, great group of guys, but they were a little before their time, before they became the quality stars in the game. Obviously, Johnny with uh, the New York Mets and Eric Davis went on to, to, to great things as well. Um, Paul O'Neill, of course, with the New York Yankees. Um, so we all find our match somewhere. Yeah. Well, and I guess before I let you go, I, I wanted to tell you a little bit and have you talk a little bit about you were part of two teams later on that won World Series titles. And and I'm not blowing smoke here, but, but around the time you went to the Angels or were with the Angels to start with, um, I was – it was the first chance I had. And as a college age student or just out of college, staying up a little later at night, things like that here in Ohio, your games were on late. Um, you know, Vin Scully and then, and then even your voice, I often fell asleep, you know, one, one AM or so with, with, uh, you describing the action of those games. Cause we would get the baseball package with the, my college roommates and things like that. And, you know, great memories of you and Hudler doing those games. And then of course, again, knowing their ties to Cincinnati and, and seeing that. And then you end up, 
I guess if you would talk about those years, but also your Kansas City years, kind of going back home and kind of wrapping up your broadcast career that way. Well, first of all, I just wanted to thank you for mentioning my name in the same sentence as Vin Scully. Vin, in my opinion, is the greatest baseball broadcaster of all yes. time. We became friends in Southern California. He doing the Dodgers. I had a chance to do the Angels for almost 15 years. And uh, just every time after a Dodger uh, Angel game, we would sit down, have a glass of wine and talk. And he was just a, a lovely man. I absolutely um, really uh, respect him tremendously. And but. The, the connection that I had with both the Angels and the Kansas City Royals championship, they were very similar teams. They were both the best base running teams. They had incredible chemistry. They had great defense. And they had unbelievable bullpens. Yeah. For uh, the Angels, they had Troy Percival and Francisco Rodriguez, who came up at the very end of that 2002 campaign, Scott Shields and Brendan Donnelly. Uh, obviously, with the Royals, they had Luke Hochaver and Greg Holland and Wade Davis and Kelvin Herrera and just on and on. And both of them had the mentality, if the starting pitcher can just give them five innings and give the bullpen a tie game or a one-run lead, they were going to win it. They were going to win that game. And also there's unity on both teams. I thought Mike Sosha did a fantastic job as the manager. Bill Stoneman was a great general manager, and they had this great unity, and they were left alone so they could build that team by themselves. And with the Royals, uh, the Glass family pretty much gave – a carte blanche to Dayton Moore, who's, in my opinion, an exceptional general manager and a man of integrity, a, a born leader. And Ned Yost, they had a, a great unity and they were allowed to build those teams. And with Mike, I remember talking to him and he said, we're going to win on pitching and defense and speed. And Ned Yost was pretty much pitching defense and speed. Uh, but both those teams had this had this love of each other where they literally would leave their ego in the locker room and play for each other. I mean, the Royals in 14 and 15 were last in Major League Baseball in walks and home runs, and they won a world championship. To me, the only way you do that is through unity and a great bullpen, and they had a ridiculous bullpen. Yeah, those bullpens remind me a little bit of the Nasty Boys with the 90 yep. Reds, and they exactly. wanted all, and, and certainly that was, if it's the fifth or sixth inning and you're behind, you're not coming back on these guys, so... Uh, they were certainly that way. Well, again, I appreciate everything from you. I wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about your books. And I, I had this phrase in my mind, men with voices like yours that are so good for radio and TV should not be able to write novels. Okay. <laughs> that you shouldn't be able to, you shouldn't be able to do both, Steve. So uh, tell me a little bit about your books. The the walls of, is it Luca? Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, it uh, is. And then Above the Walls, and you've got some baseball books as well, Walks with the Wind and Catching the Wind. Yeah, and it's really interesting because I think it's my passion for storytelling. I mm -hmm. mean, as a little kid, I was a reader. I, I read all kinds of books. And when I was a sports broadcaster, I really did not read sports books. I would read the classics, whether it was uh, John Steinbeck or Ernest Hemingway or in this era, Kristen Hanna and Diana Gabaldon. I just fell in love with great writing and great storytellers. And uh, in 2006, I actually took my wife to Italy and, we, and I 
Believe it or not, I had a vivid dream a week before I went to Lucca, Italy, and the dream was about two families struggling to produce uh, a great wine in Italy, in Italy and uh, a young lady, a spiritual young woman, coming up to help the uh, family produce this wine. And I woke up, and instead of going back to sleep, I wrote down the outline, told my wife about it the next day, and a week later, we're driving into this town, never seen it before, never been there, didn't read about it, but it was Lucca, Italy. And I said to my wife as we're driving in, oh my gosh, this is it. These, these are the walls I saw in my dream. And if you drive around this way, there'll be this little turret where you can go in, enter. And sure enough, we drove around. There was a turret there wait to enter. Huh. It's like, so now I'm interested. And I bought a book about the history of Luca, Italy, fell in love with it, and wrote a story about two families struggling to produce a great wine in Italy's dark days of World War I, the rise of fascism, and... Um, Mussolini. Both books are um, love stories slash historical fiction. And The Walls of Luca and Above the Walls were rewarded, rewarded by readers' favorite and reader views as best historical fiction in 2018 and 19. And the book um, Walks with the Wind was named the grand prize winner by Writer's Digest. And Writer's Digest is in Cincinnati. Oh, Their wow. organization is in Cincinnati. And uh, I won that award in 2021. And uh, if you want to go, that that is a it is a baseball slash action adventure slash political intrigue slash family saga slash um, spiritual book. And uh, uh, it, it, you know, I, I was really blessed to to win that award in in 2021. And then uh, the sequel, Catching the Wind is where my young star gets a chance with the major league team with, with the Kansas city Royals. Yeah. But, uh, but the, the, the surrounding element of all my stories is team building, whether you're working on a vineyard, trying to produce a wine or in Sam cloud Carson, who's the fictional character in walks with the wind, how he um, lets go of his ego and connects with other individuals to, to be able to make it because as you know, our, our sports industry is filled with egos, but the championships that I've seen are the guys who leave them in the locker room and play for each other. Well, definitely worthy, worthy stories to tell and, and experience as well. So I recommend, you know, amazon.com, I assume other places you can yeah, go you can just type in my name or you can type in uh, Google Steve That's my uh, author page. Um, but if you go to Amazon, type in my name, P-H-Y-S-I-O-C. It's a weird name. And <laughs> the books will all come up. Well, I'm telling you a voice that I will always remember, especially as I was saying from uh, just I couldn't get enough baseball. I remember watching and Dwayne Kuyper and those guys, too. Like I remember watching Barry Bonds hit his what 500th and 600th home run back to back years because of how many he was hitting. But I remember tuning in to hear you as well. And and again, to, to know that you were partly in Cincinnati as well. That's a, a really cool thing. And I love what you've shared about uh, your time in Cincinnati. Thanks so much. Well, Cincinnati was my introduction to Major League Baseball. It was my first break into Major League Baseball. And I just remembered broadcasting that first game and thinking, I'm in a Major League ballpark, Riverfront Stadium. And here's a young broadcaster who's getting his chance. And to do it in Cincinnati, a great baseball town, you know, gives me chills to this day. Well, Steve, thanks again and enjoy retirement. Thank you, Seth. I am.
We moved to Evergreen, Colorado, and I'm with the deer and elk every day. All right. All right. Well, thanks so much. Thank you, Seth.